With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. morning. Um, this is your host, Sherri Ann Turpin, and you are listening to At the Edge. Um, today, we are talking with Dr. Anthea Butler. Um, Anthea Butler um, is Associate Professor of Religious Studies, Graduate Chair of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Um, she is a contributing editor and blogger at Religion Dispatches. Um, Dr. Butler's um, research interests include religion, politics, religion and politics, religion and popular culture, women and religion, Pentecostalism, sexuality, and African-American um, religion. If you would like to know more about Dr. Butler's research, uh, you can always um, catch her on Twitter, um, Anthea Butler, one word. Um, and so today um, we're going to be talking about um, Anthea, uh, Anthea Butler's um, upcoming book, The Gospel According to Sarah, How Sarah Palin's Tea Party Angels Are Galvanizing the Religious Right. Um, and so we're going, to, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, the Republican and Democrat, Democratic um, conventions um, and we, we focus on religion, um, you know, women's reproductive rights, um, et cetera, et cetera. We've got a lot to talk about this morning. Um, how are you, Anthea? Good. How are you? Ah, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. <laughs> uh, most people who listen to me are, are accustomed to uh, listening to me at night, um, but um, we are both um, professors um, in we know what what schedules are like. Plus, I know that you have um, a pretty pretty tight schedule. Um, for those of you who are listening who are not familiar with Dr. Butler, um, you can see her um, as a contributing um, commentator on shows on, uh, like uh, NPR on MSNBC. Um, I think the last time I saw you, Anthea, was um, on well. Gosh, you were you did on quite a, quite a few shows, but I know Melissa um, um, Harris Perry's uh, show among others. Um, yeah. So yeah, you 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 really you know in the in in the public public light, and so um, this particular book on Sarah Palin, um, first and foremost, um, how did you uh, how did you go on that particular um, trail, so to speak. 
what inspired you? <laughs> well, um, I, it actually started back in September 2008, right after she was announced as a VP candidate. And what was interesting, I think, for a lot of people is that she's a Pentecostal, and a lot of my work is in about Pentecostalism. And so I was interviewed by a woman who is now my colleague at Religious Dispatches, Sarah Posner, for Salon, for an article called Where She Got Saved. And I said a couple of things that people argued with me about, about Sarah Palin. I said, one, you know, you could tell the difference between her and an evangelical woman. An evangelical woman would have asked her husband because she run for office, and a Pentecostal woman was like, God called me, you need to take care of the kids. So I got really interested in her, you know, and despite all the crazy things that she says with CDA, you know, and the kinds of things she's, she's done, like I'm um, talking about death panels and everything, there's a method to her madness, and part of that is about how to talk to people in a way that's sort of, it's dog whistle politics, but it's a very potent kind of dog whistle politics. And the effects that she's had on the Republican Party in terms of how people present themselves to the public, we saw this a lot in the um, uh, Republican debates this spring and summer, and also we saw we see it in what's going on in the campaign right now with Romney and Ryan. Um, one of the things that Sarah Palin perfected was not answering the question that the reporters asked you and um, pushing that off. So, you know, I mean, she's the, she is the mistress of, you know, faint and parry and try to get your message across to the people you want to get it across to while everybody else thinks you're stupid. So that really intrigued me, and that's part of the book. The other piece of the book is about the people who follow her and the people who are really sold out to her. And that took a really big hit um, in October of last year when she decided not to run for um, president. And so it's been kind of an interesting path to write this book while everything is happening. I'm a historian, so it's kind of disconcerting to deal with people who are alive. And Sarah mm-hmm. Palin is very much alive and very much um, has followers. So it makes for an interesting process. So the book should be out late this fall. It may even, you know, not be released until January. But I, I'm hoping that, you know, I think she'll still be relevant in certain kinds of ways, even though people like to think of her as being finished. I think she has a second, possibly a third act in her if she gets down to it. I, I certainly don't discount um, Sarah Palin and her and her relevancy when it comes to um, politics, particularly in, in Washington. Um, I don't think that uh, Representative Ryan would have been able to um, be uh, the the vice presidential uh, candidate um, without um, her influence. I mean, he's pretty much uh, seen as, you know, sort of a, a, you know, a a gift, uh, so to speak, if you want to call it that. Um, of the of the Tea Party and the Tea Party's influence, and the Tea Party itself probably would not have been able to last as long as it has um, without um, her influence and without her constant presence um, in in the media. And yeah, so, I, um, I think that she's definitely somebody um, that we, we definitely need to to keep an eye on. And of course, she complicates the question about um, you know women's voices, women's activism, um, especially uh, when it comes to um, religion and especially when it comes to um, Pentecostalism or notions about Pentecostalism. Um, So what exactly 
what is the what's the what's the what's the scheme behind that particular behind yeah, that well, agent? Yeah, my first book was about uh, Women in the Church of God in Christ, and it's called Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. But one of the things I think that's really important about Pentecostal women is that, you know, people would have the tendency to think, well, they're just all about Jesus, you know, they're all about church, they're not involved. But I think these women see themselves as very much involved in civic engagement. So, for instance, for African-American women in Church of God in Christ, they were very involved in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s with, you know, the public. How do you, you know, get rid of racism? How do you, you know, help young men and women become, you know, members of society, education, all of that? And I think this is broadly true for Pentecostal women because if they believe in, you know, um, Joel, you know, that the spirit is poured out on all flesh in Joel chapter 2, then that means male and female flesh. There's, there's no differentiation. So what you see in Pentecostalism, around the world, especially, you know, in countries like South America, I mean, the continent of South America, Africa, Asia, is that women play a very big role, and this is about uplift. It's not just about getting the Holy Spirit. It's about getting the Holy Spirit so you can improve your finances, getting the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. so you can get a drunk husband to act right, you know, all of those things. And I think that's why women become very involved in Pentecostal churches, because they want to see change not just in their personal lives, but in the lives of everybody around them in the community. So it's, it's right. really a community kind of thing, even though you would think that it wasn't. Right. Well, my mother is a my mother is a is is a minister um, in in the Pentecostal tradition, and oh, yeah? Um, yeah, yeah, she is, she is, and you know, she started out as an AME minister, and now she um, is a minister in a, in a Pentecostal church, and. Um, one of the things that you know that that we talk about, even though we don't really agree. I mean, I'm I'm a um, I'm part of the Lakumi Lakumi house, but we talk about spirituality. But we also talk about women in the church and dealing with those issues, dealing with um, sexual harassment, um, mm-hmm. dealing with discrimination against women who would like to be able to. Um, to preach and who would like to do what she refers to as healing and deliverance. And for her, part of that process is um, really um, empowering women um, to stand up against um, not just sexual harassment, but domestic violence. Um, A lot of the the young women who she ministers to um, are dealing with domestic violence, um, are dealing with sexual violence, and... um, I mean, she is a social conservative, but she is not what people would think to be as a a social conservative. My mother does Mm -hmm. not believe in um, remaining in a a marriage where where the husband is abusive. Um, She does not believe in that. And, you know, and and that, I think, is is something that's very, very important, that it's not all just cut from one cloth. And I think that there's some misconceptions about um, Christian women in, in, um, in, in general and Christian women um, from our community. Not all of, not all Christian women, um, you know, believe that you know that it's okay for for men to just do um, the kinds of things that you know that that damage uh, our, our relationships. My mother is a she's a very com- complex woman, but it. I see that with with many other Pentecostal women who I've who I've encountered, and that in in some instances 
have joined a Pentecostal church or Pentecostal tradition as a way of contending or dealing with um, sexual exploitation, with um, racism, and you know, from you know, on the job, and 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 just dealing with the difficulty of being a black woman in in American society. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, I, that is a misnomer, and I think one of the reasons why is that people just think you know fundamentals or conservatives always mean one particular way of behaving, right? And there's many spaces on that on that spectrum. So when somebody like a Sarah Palin could say, I'm a feminist, that really upsets a lot of feminists. But in her mind, there's like this sort of evangelical, like a Christian feminism that sort of mm-hmm. means that you know, I can work, I can, you know, I can minister, I can do all these things. I still understand that my husband might be the head of the household. But there's mm-hmm. also a way in which they believe that they can step out and do some things that are, you know, that other women who are in conservative um, world don't expect that they can do. You know what I'm saying? Yes, 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 I do. And I, you know, I think that, um, <laughs> I think that, I, I think that when you, when you look at the, the, the variety of, of women who have, you know, become active in, in, in politics, you have, Pentecostals, you have Christian women who are not, they're not all Republicans. Uh, quite a few of them are, are Democrats. And as you mentioned before, um, in our community, we have a very long tradition of, of women um, who became active in the church as a part of the larger civil rights movement. Um, and that when you look at um, the, the 20th century, um, and look at the, the history of the, the civil rights movement. Um, where would it have been? Where would it have ended up had it not been for um, those women who were moved by what they felt to be um, a spiritual battle, not just a political battle, but a spiritual battle? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that that definitely um, you know uh, uh, plays plays into it. And so, um, could you? Maybe just kind of um, talk a little bit more about that, and in, in, in particular the, the way that you um, approached your your book on, um, you know, Pentecostal women, um, and, and you know the, the whole question about being sanctified, and and you know how that plays into, um, you know, the shaping of, of of our community because it is it it's still very a very strong influence. Yeah. Yeah, well, I always tell people, you know, that I think the first thing that's this really important point, and that is to sort of change the locus of how people think about this. So, so one way to talk about, you know, sanctified life is to think about this as it's not about, you know, the, the respectability conversation that, say, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham has in her old book about um, black Baptist women. It's a broader conversation because it's not about acting right, but acting right, R-I-G-H-T, for God. Okay. And that sanctified life is for Jesus. It's not for anybody mm-hmm. else. So, you know, you hear people make this, com- this interesting conversation about, well, you know, she's just in love with Jesus, right? I think that's really true for black women. It's like this really, you know, especially black Christian women, this real love for Jesus, right? And mm-hmm. and Jesus is like the man. When your man is not acting right, it's for Jesus. And so this idea about sanctification 
you know, being being holy and being upright and being righteous, not only brings this religious piece into it, it brings a sense of stature into the community. So in other words, if you are a sanctified woman or a holiness woman, as some people might call it, then you mm-hmm. get, if there are props added to you in a certain kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you have a, there's a sense in which you are, um, you you stand a head and shoulders above other women, okay? Mm-hmm. And that becomes a very important um, ideal for women to to aspire to, and it gives you it gives you something within the community where you might not be someone who has a lot of um, I don't want to put it you might not be somebody who has a lot of stature in your in your work life or or that, but in the church it puts you on a different pedestal altogether. So it gives mm-hmm. you a sense. Longing, it gives you a sense um, in which that you can aspire to be something too. Now, people look up to you spiritually, right? And, yes. and some of this also goes back to the 19th century, where um, part of that also has to do with this idea that you know holiness meant that you know living a sanctified life meant you were free from sin, and so that also puts you in a different kind of perspective altogether. When you can say, well, you know, I'm leading a sinless life. That's very different than saying, you know, I, I've got the other kind of problems that other people have. Mm-hmm. That's very right. different. So I think right. that all of these things sort of added up, you know, give you a sense in which it gives you power. It also gives you kind of a charismatic power that even when the um, preacher isn't necessarily buying what you, you know, you're not necessarily buying what the preacher might be saying, you have a spiritual authority to be able to say something to him as well. And that also becomes right. important. I mean, very important in, in a right. lot of different ways. So I think that is a is a way in which you can start to think about what these women are doing in terms of in terms of the you know power differential and shift and how they take agency. Now, it's not always good. I mean, some of these women, especially when I interviewed some of the women that I talked to, there were stories I just couldn't tell them. You know about you know them getting beaten by their husbands and things uh-huh. like this, this stuff happens. But I'll uh-huh. use somebody who stands outside of this because I think this is a really interesting, timely story. Um, I just saw a video of um, Eddie Long's wife talking about why she's saved. Right. And I wouldn't put her in the characteristic of, like, the sanctified woman thing, but this decision that she makes to stay, she tries to couch it by she's doing something for God. And I thought, this is a classic case of somebody who you wish could get the message in a different kind of way, you know? I'm serious. Yeah, I, I, I was I was just about to about to bring 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 him up because I it seemed to me that you have it, it's almost as if this uh, sort of a uh, he has a cult following, and it seems it's, to me yeah. that yeah, yeah, it seems to me that the more um, problems <laughs> that he has, the more that uh, the more the more support that he has, in particular from those uh, from those women, and you know, you and I both know that without the women, in when it comes to the black church, without the women, um, you really don't have <laughs> you really don't have a very uh, very strong church because you know we have tended to to, to be the you know the steam so to speak um, behind the engine. Um, you know, we're the ones who you know who um, who pretty much. Do the the promoting of the um, you know of, of the minister of the of the church and you know the, 
the entire support system depended upon um, black women's, women's labor. Um, I wanted to also bring up um, another controversial uh, minister and uh, some gender issues, uh, Cresswell Dollar. I have an opinion. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, when I read the story and, you know, and I, I was talking to different people, um, and just about every person um, who I talked to um, seems to have the opinion that, oh, well, you know, he was doing what he was, he was supposed to do. But the whole dynamic said to me, first of all, he, it said the, the first word that came to my mind was bully. You have a situation exactly. where you have a man who's out of control who could have easily snapped that young woman's neck. And then where? Then what, what would they have said? Well, was it God's will? I, to me, it, it, seemed, it, it seemed extreme. And his reaction came as a result of her emotional response. Yeah. His response to her tears was to go into overdrive. And mm-hmm. then you have his wife who's just sort of standing in the, in, in the distance, and it just, it just seemed, it seemed awfully ex- extreme. And, it, again, the whole idea of that, you know, his wife and his daughters are his property, that, that, that idea. And so exactly. what, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I have many, but the first thing is, let me, let me start with a theological piece, and then I'm going to talk about Cruffalo. I, I talk about people who get into this prosperity theology as brittle theology, and, and this is what I mean by brittle. It's the kind of theology where you have to really believe what you believe, and you can't reason your way out of things. So in other words, when you are, um, you know, I got to believe that God's going to give me the money I need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you have to believe that beyond shadow of a doubt. And what that means is, is that you can't have anything question that. And so what it does is, excuse me, it puts people in this really hard place okay. where they got to believe, believe, believe no matter what. And it makes for rigid kinds of thinking. So you don't, you know, you can't reason your way out and think, I mean, maybe I should be doing this. Maybe I should be doing something else. You know, maybe this is not going to happen. Maybe this is not what God wants, right? But mm-hmm. that's not how you have to, that's not how you think when you have this brutal theology. So Kreffel's problem is that, I, you know, I've seen him live before, and I have to be honest, I really feel like he treats his congregation just like he treats his daughter. Like, they don't know anything, and i got to beat you into submission. I, I use this analogy about him. I said, you know, this is how abusers treat abusive women or how a pimp treats his prostitute. That I you thought get about so- that, too, that he came across like a pimp. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's like I'm going to be like this ugly thing, and if you don't act right, I'm going to go ahead and beat you, okay? Because clearly you don't know what I'm saying to you, and I need to get you to submit. And that's the way that I get you to submit is to beat you, right? And so mm-hmm. that creates this sort of really just a terrible situation, I think, in terms of his daughters because they've been underneath this sort of abusive situation. Now, you notice all this went quiet, and it's very difficult to find out you know, what's going to happen next and that the wife stood by him. But I think they're all in a situation in which he's running that house with an iron fist. Mm-hmm. And because he's running that house with an iron fist, then you don't have somebody you could really reason with. 
And this is somebody that you can, you know, you can have a conversation with about too much stuff at all. So, you know, I really am sad for these young women because I feel like, you know, you don't have much of a choice because your dad is not exactly the friendliest person on earth. And this is, and he's not going to be the kind of man that can, you know, he may have said he was sorry, but he may have said he was sorry because he needed to say he was sorry. And that, um, you know, he's got, he's still facing some charges in front of him. But, that, I mean, that's not, Creflo's not a surprise to me. That did not surprise me. I mean, what surprised me was that, that the other daughter actually called the police, which says a lot to me in terms of thinking about, well, this probably means that this has happened before and that they mm-hmm. can't really deal with him in the ways that they've dealt with him before and that this has become a much more serious situation. So right. that says a as well, to, to me personally, because I think what it says is, is that, you know, obviously we've got somebody who is doing some abusive things and, you know, has probably gotten away with a lot of stuff before. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, um, you know, what, what we have to start looking for and actually what we have to start talking to, especially women, but I no doubt ha- this happens to men too, is that if you're sitting underneath somebody who's, a, you know, an abusive pastor, you need to get out. Mm-hmm. And this is not the man yes. of God or the woman of God. This is like a person who is abusive to you, and you should be. And this has nothing to do with, you know, oh, you know, I should stay because God told me I should stay in this church or whatever. You need to go. And and and, and that, that you know how hard that is for 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 many folks in our in our community. Very, it's hard. very difficult. Yeah, because I think part of it is is that abuse is seen as, as spiritual love or, or something like that. I mean, I really think that that's part of the issue is that for some people they see this as, well, you know, pastor loves me. Uh, this means that I can, um, you know, this is going to be okay. Pastor's mm-hmm. not trying to hurt me, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But mm-hmm. I think what have to deal with is that, you know, can you get arrested? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a that's a big that's a big thing. I mean if we were talking about this would bring if you were doing this in any other community, you you know, you'd be in a clink. And I think you have to start thinking about what that means. Because it's not just God's laws, man's laws as well. And that's something right. that people try not to think about too much, but I think it's really important. I mean, if you can take your if you can take your pastor to the jailhouse and he's doing something he shouldn't be doing, then it's time for you to think about going to another church. It's just time. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I grew up I, I grew up as a um, – we, we were part of the United Church of Christ, um, mm-hmm. and um, during my teens, uh, United Methodist Church. But, you know, I've seen what can happen when you have ministers um, who really have a – in my opinion, have a – have a God complex, and if they if they see that they can get away with it, which is why it's important that you know that that parishioners understand that um, they're not sheep. I know that there's the shepherd and the sheep, you know, uh, analogy, but that you know they are adults, and that it is their res- you have a responsibility not only for yourself but for your children when you bring them into that environment. Um, if you know if it is an unhealthy environment emotionally, spiritually, or even physically, um, you have to leave. Um, yes. the, the last 
the, the you know the United Methodist Church that, that I attended, we went through several ministers, and we had one minister who um, yelled at a at a family because um, they wanted to leave. He demanded that they sit down, and I looked at my my parents, and you know we stopped going to that church. Actually, um, ended up at another um, you know, United Methodist. Uh, church. You know, I mess with this. One thing that I do like about them is that you don't have you don't have you, you don't have the same kind of um absolute power um you know in the pulpit that you that you see in, in other churches like some of the Baptist churches, some of the Pentecostal churches or or even some of the, the Catholic churches where you have the person in the pulpit with absolute power. That parishioners do have um there's a sharing of power. And yeah. when you have ministers who are out of control, they will remove that minister from the pulpit. They don't allow that. And so yeah. it's taught it's me something. Yeah, yeah. But it's also the truth that, I mean, more and more of these churches, especially African-American churches now, are in these sort of, you know, charismatic places where they're not part of the denomination. I mean, part of that is about, you know, you can get somebody taken out of the pulpit because you were in a church that had polity. You were in a church right. that had a hierarchy. You know, there was somebody above the pastor in that community. Somebody like a couple of dollars has no one above him. So it's like, you running your own shit. You can do what you want to do. Nobody tells you what to do. And that's the problem. This is where it becomes really, you know, sticky when you've got people like this who are under nobody's authority but their own, and they don't have any authority, really. Yeah, you know, that's, that just, whole thing with him being crowned, uh, oh, that, that, I, I was like, that was really extreme. Yeah, that was that's troubling. You know, the whole thing where they wrapped him in the Eddie Long and the tour and all that. First, it was just wrong. I mean, on so many levels. But again, this is a way in which these people use, you know, these fake rituals. And I call them fake. I mean, as a religious studies professor, I just like you know, you can rituals can have meaning, but that ritual had no meaning anyway. I mean, it just it didn't it connected to nothing. But it was a way in which. Um, you know, he could dupe his people into believing that, you know, despite the fact that I've had to pay off these, you know, five young men who, I've, you know, I've had sexual relations with and, you know, I've never told the truth about this or, or the many other people that they might have happened with. Um, here, I still have spiritual authority, and I want to bring somebody in to show that I have spiritual authority by, you know, making up this ritual that shows something. So, I mean, I think, you know, when the scripture does say people perish for lack of knowledge, that's one I really do believe in, because they do perish right. for lack of knowledge. There are people that are perishing right now in these congregations who have given up their money and time. I mean, think about Evander Holyfield, somebody who lost his house because he gave, mm-hmm. like, you know, seven million, eight million, I don't know how many millions of dollars he's given the Preferno dollar. Right, and, right. And that's, that's what we, and, you know, and we, you know, that's what I would refer to, you know, as big, as the situation in which you have, you know, people who, you know, in the public eye who have, you know, come under the spell of, of what I would refer to as false prophets. Um, false prophets not because there's a singularity of what, you know, of what a religion, um, you know, what a religion should, should look like so much as it is about looping people in, you know, for the for the purpose of sucking them, sucking them dry. And so... Yeah. When you see that, you know, it's no wonder that you have many people who say, well, 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 then why belong to any church? Why belong to anything? You know, you can't really, can't really, really tr- uh, trust any particular, um, you know, uh, church or, because you, these 
people who who proclaim themselves as as guides are in reality just con artists. It's, that's a that's a big con. That's a huge con. You give seven eight million dollars to somebody and you can't even um, feed yourself. That's that's devastating. I, I can't imagine what 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 that would be what that would be like. Um, and it, with that same kind of energy, what do you what did you think about the the whole question about? Um, I guess there were some folks in the in the Democratic Party who were upset because um, God and Jesus and Jerusalem were not in the platform and. Well, now it's back in and 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 whatnot. There seems to be a a perception that if you're a Democrat, then you're not, you know, you're not as as enthusiastic about being a Christian as as um, are the Republicans. Um, that's not true, is it? No, it's not, it's not true. true. And you know, and I think you know, and in this thing, I sort of think I wish I hadn't done it. You know. Because it was just sort of pandering in a sense to the, you know, to the need to be like the Republicans or to fit this thing. I mean, I think people put so much stock on this, partially because of the religious right, that it has taken over everything. Now, I see what has happened with the, with the Democratic Party as a way of sort of taking the um, energy away mm-hmm. from Republicans and being on top. And with the question of Israel, you know, that's a that's a touchy question right now, especially since, you know, personally, in my opinion, right now, the story that's not getting a lot of press is how, you know, African immigrants are being abused in, in Israel right now. So right. It is, you know, it's a problematic about, about this in, in many senses, but there's also the sense in which, you know, the Democrats think they can get some, and then maybe they can peel off some, a, a few of these votes from disgruntled Republicans who hate this stuff, but this might not be the way to do it, you know? So Right, and I people think, people who are on the fence, there are people who are on the fence. They haven't decided whether they want to go one direction or another. I don't know, I don't think it's occurred to them that there, there are quite a few folks who maybe voted for Reagan, maybe even voted for, for Bush the first time, but became disillusioned because if you, it seems to me that if you are not um, if you're not on the extreme Christian right, um, you not only can't run for office as a Republican, but you're not really appreciated or catered to, or um, or even understood um, by by the, the hierarchy in in the Republican Party. There's really no air. There's no air. There's no room to breathe if you no, are. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. There's no room. I mean, and, and furthermore, actually, what the problem is with the Republican Party is that the, the religious right has taken over the Republican Party, and so Republican candidates are also religious candidates. That's just right. it. I mean, that's really the sto- that's part of the story of um, Sarah Palin, too, is that what that meant was that people became, in a way, what happened was was that you, they sort of jumped the shark, and they made a candidate who was both this you know, very religious person who wasn't afraid to talk about that and was also a political person and came to power politically by following, you know, the, the, the map of Christian coalition and other things in the 80s and 90s. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is where the Democrats have to sort of think about what they're doing here and not go down that same path. I mean, I think it needs to be a big, it needs to be a big tent. We saw it was a big tent from all the variety of people who were there, 
but it also needs to be a sense in which they're not trying to do the same things that Republicans are doing because it's really what the Republicans have done is really just destroyed the party. I mean, in a lot of different ways for them, they've just, it's going to take a long time for them to come back. And they are now the party of a particular kind of religious belief. And even though you have a Mormon sitting on top of that ticket, he is parsing himself in ways that he can fit that particular style of religious belief. And so he's right. hoping that nobody too close to him, looks too close at him before the election. That's really what I think is happening. Yeah, because he's a, I mean, as a, I mean, there's, there's a profound difference between Mormonism and, and, and Pentecostalism. Um, and, and, and in fact, um, there are some, there are some who, who there were some problems with, you know, with him being a, um, you know, being a Mormon, um, with, with at least some of the, some of the, the you know, the conservatives, the, uh, the religious conservatives in any, in any case, you know, that, okay, he's, he's a businessman and he's, he's pro-business and, and, and very much, you know, in line with what, um, you know, what's expected, um, you know, as a, as a fiscal conservative, but, if you're a social conservative who is looking for a particular, um, looking for, for certain words, certain keywords, certain uh, certain triggers, you're not going to get it from him. You'll get it from Ryan, but you won't get it from um, you won't get it from Romney. His voting record, as, a, as in his his political um, history as as a governor, doesn't even speak to that. And so, in yeah. some ways, I feel as though that uh, I feel as though people needed to somehow suspend disbelief in order to see something in him that's really not there. He really is not. He's not an evangelical. He's not a Pentecostal. Um, by no, no. <laughs> he's a white guy. That's the most important thing. He's not. He's not President Obama. He's a white guy. I mean, that's, no, that, that that's Right, that seems to be that seems to be the theology of the day. You know, white guy theology. You know, I'm, um, yeah. you know, I'm white. I'm Anglo-Saxon. That's that's you know that's that's all that's, that's all that, that needs to be that needs to be said. And to me, that doesn't really uh, doesn't really cut it. You you know. So and then of course there's the constant questioning of Obama's um, you know Christianity. I. It, it it boggles the mind that he is he's Christian. I mean, he's you know he's not. There's no. There really should not be a discussion, you know, about what his religious um, what is his religious background. But yet uh, we are still um, you know being bombarded with that. You know, he's, what does it what does it really take? What does you know what is it that uh, that, that they seem to be looking for. And then, of course, that leads to a larger question. You know, if they're questioning Obama about his faith, what does it say about the ways in which African Americans are, are looked upon? And again, going right back to that idea that, you know, black people who came to this country in chains and, you know, were in, in many ways forcibly converted because of that, our Christianity is still not, uh, it's still, you know, put into question, is that an authentic, um, you know, Christianity? I don't know. It just seems to me that um, yeah. if you if you can't be, you know, 
if you're being questioned about, if you have a president who's being questioned about his, you know, his religious faith, well, what does that leave for the, you know, leave for the rest of us, or at least for those of us who are who are Christian? Yeah, I, well, I think I think it means a couple of things. I think it's not about black people being Christian. I think it's about a black president in the White House. That that sounds like a strange distinction to make, but I don't think you know. I, you know, nobody ever thought about, you know, black people being Christians. They just thought that that was the norm until you got this black president. And then there was any way you had to demonize him, you needed to demonize him, right? So right. that you had to call the Christianity into question to call him into question, right? But I don't know that that extends out to the rest of the black community. Now, I do think what does extend out to the rest of the black community is the sense of which that, you know, they're going to vote for him no matter what, right? Because it's a, it's a race thing. But I don't know that it's about, you know, black people's Christianity as a whole. I think it's about this particular man's um, ethos mm-hmm. and whole thing. I mean, yesterday, um, Ruben, who um, I forget her first name, who's at the Washington Post, talked about um, Obama. They show a piece where Obama's sitting in jeans on the White House, on the JFK desk, and she says, that's just so rude. He should get his butt off of that desk. You know, and, and, and somebody put online was like, well, you know, JFK probably had a lot of sex on that desk. Why are you just upset about a lot of This is what I'm talking about. I mean, like, the black man can't sit on the desk. If it would have been a white guy, this would have been no question, you know? But well, I, about, I, I think it, 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 it goes to the, the whole question of what are you doing in that seat? The only reason why you should be in that, you know, why you should see a black person in the White House is, you know, working under a white man. Yeah, you know, exactly. the idea that that, that that you know that you cannot be um, the head of the board, you can't be the chair of the board, uh, you cannot be you know in charge of anything, and that you know that the only uh, <laughs> the the only place for us when it comes to, to to the White House, according to that kind of thinking, that kind of mentality, is you know through the through the back door. Yeah, it was all fine. It was all fine until we got a black man as president. And the moment a black man became president, everybody lost their collective mind. I mean, you know, on on white society, for some whites, not everybody, but for some. So this is is the issue about what it, you know, what that means. And so Clint Eastwood's chair said a lot. That's, you know, unfortunately, that is part of the Republican demographic right now. And they've got to deal with that. I mean, that's that's part of who is running the party. And until right. they figure out what to do with those people, you know, who don't want a black president, but they'll take the Mormon guy because it's just like, we just got to give up something here, and this is the only thing we can give up at this point. Right. Well, we'll, we'll do right. that. You know, right. that's, gonna, right. that's how this is going to work for them. That's how it's going to well, work. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, this is this is this is a, a, a great conversation. I really would like to have you on um, my show again. I think that um, I think um, after perhaps after the uh, the elections, we'll, you know, I think that would probably be a, a, a great a great time for us to to kind of recap what yeah. you know, what did it produce? What did it produce? And so um, at this time, what I'd like to do is um, give you uh, give you as much space and, and, and time as you need to promote um, anything you'd like to promote, anything that you'd like to plug, so that anybody who would like to see more of what um, 
you have to to say um, so that they can um, um, see what you okay. what you're writing. Okay, well, well, two things. One is, you know, the book, The Gospel According to Sarah, it'll be out on the New Press. It's on Amazon right now and at the New Press website. So if you want to pre-order that, that would be great. That's number one. Uh, number two is you can look for me on the Most Harris Parish show. I'm usually on about once a month. Uh, third, this week, I'm actually going to be um, tomorrow on Joey Bihar's Current uh, and talking about 9-11 and uh, Muslims and the issues that are facing us religiously in this country and a little bit about the election, so that's three. And then four, if you are um, in the New York area on September 29th, I will be at Columbia uh, on a panel talking about my friend Fred Harris's book called The Price of the Ticket, which is about Obama and the African-American community in the last four years in this past this, this past election. And then finally, fifth, if you're in the Nashville area, I will be the co-lecturer for Vanderbilt Divinity School, and that's the last weekend in October, which is um, October 25th and 26th, and you can find that at my website, anthonybutler.com, which will be a new website up sometime this week, or you can find that at the Vanderbilt Divinity website. So I think I got all my plugs in. I think that's it. Excellent. And don't forget, um, you can always um, read um, read Anthea Butler's um, commentary on um, religiondispatch.com. Um, right. um, in addition, yep, in addition, if you, um, for those of you who are planning to download or those of you who are listening right now but didn't want to call in, um, you can always um, send commentary. Um, you can send commentary to me on Twitter, on uh, Dr. Turpin. Um, you can um, send your comments, um, or you can send comments to Anthea Butler. Anthea Butler, um, you know, on, twi- on Twitter as well. You can find us both on Twitter. Um, you can always um, send me um, commentary by going to um, going to my my blog, um, Afrofuturism Scholar. Uh, dot com, and so I, I really do appreciate you, um, you know, coming coming on board and, and coming on um, my show this morning. This is uh, this has turned out to be a, a, a really good way for me to wake up. I might have to do this again, <laughs> wake up and do and, and do a show and do a show. And so, audience. Um, Please be aware that this show is actually on iTunes. You can always download it. Um, and I really would appreciate it if you all would consider following me um, and, uh, you know, making yourself known. And so um, would appreciate that. Now, for um, our show on the 14th, um, we do have a show, another show. I have another show this week. Uh, and that one will be at 8 p.m. Uh, our next show will be Smarty Girl Salon, Irish Writers. Yes, I do, Irish Diaspora, because I think that the Irish Diaspora and the African Diaspora, we have a lot in common. Um, and I will have Anna Malloy and Pat Schneider, um, and they will be talking about um, Anna Malloy's new book, Smarty Girl, um, and, um, you know, talking about, uh, talking about Smarty Girl, Dublin Savage, um, talks about Irish culture, social class, race, black culture. Anna Malloy is um, very much influenced by African-American culture. Um, 
And so looking forward to that. And um, on the 19th, I know that there's some listeners um, who um, can't wait for this one, Art, Pop Culture, Fan Sites, Roundtable on Gable Byrne, the actor. And so I'm going to be talking to uh, fan site mistresses who um, have dedicated quite a bit of time on free promotion for, uh, for, for, uh, for Gable Byrne. And so I'm writing a book on Gable Byrne and talking about race and masculinity and, 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 and whatnot. And so I know that there's going to be some folks who, um, who are going to be looking forward to that. And um, also talking with my former student, um, who is now um, a poet and a scholar, Dr. Randall Horton. He's at um, University of New Haven, and so we're going to be talking about that. And last of all, my uncle, um, the Reverend Dr. Gregory Thomas, Calvary Baptist Church in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And so we're going to be talking about the black church, practical theology. Um, and so um, we'll probably end up talking about you, Anthea. Put in a good way. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> In a good, in a good way, in a good way, and he he definitely um, you know influenced influenced me um, in in looking at um, theology and looking at um, um, you know African American culture. Thank you so much, and you all, please um, feel free to leave comments with us. Um, we would love to hear uh, what you all have to say. Have a great day, Dr. Butler. You too. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.